want to express my appreciation to your pastor, Adam Tice, and the elders here. It's been uh, two years since I was last up here. I first got back out to L.A. working at Masters University in August 2016, and so I was here sometime in September. And Adam and I, have been, we were friends before that, and now back here we get to spend some time together. And I, I'm really close. We live just a half mile away from the campus, and I work even closer in King Hall there. So Adam and I kind of have this relationship that's built that we can call on each other in the clutch you know when you need it and so he asked me to come and speak here and and I get him for perhaps the most unenviable task of preaching in chapel at masters I get to invite the speakers and master students I'm just tipping my hand to this uh, some of you it won't even affect you because you won't even be part of it but the chapel before Thanksgiving break is notoriously the least attended chapel everybody is just wanting to get out of there and so it's Friday, and I think the cars are even running out in the parking lot. <laughs> they've just, you know, they've gotten through midterms. They're tired. They just want to get out of there. And for the last two years, you know, I just, I'm always trying to find the right guy for it. <laughs> and Adam's energy, his joy, all that makes him uh, such a wonderful pastor, his passion for the Lord, I'm like, I got to bring it. I, I got that guy needs to be there on that one. Now, I know that seems counterintuitive. Like, why not invite him to the opening chapel when everybody's there? Well, because I need Adam Tyson for that chapel, because otherwise it, it's just it's a lost cause. You know, we'll just we'll just repeat a tape or something like that. So thankful that the last two years and even he has signed on for a third year. He's going to be the three peat of the last chapel before Thanksgiving. So thankful for him. It's a great partnership. TMU, we enjoy with your church. Anytime I've interacted with a student who attends here, you know, it's, it's language of affection and gratitude that they get to be part of your church. So thank you for the way in which you love on the Master's University students, knowing that with a lot of those relationships, some of you that host them in your homes, you have them for dinners and some of the things you see up there on the announcements, uh, that, that's a transient population. They're here for a season. Some of them may stay longer, but the fact of the matter is that you love them and welcome them and care for them and disciple them. All of that, expressing the love of Christ and getting to disciple them to follow Christ more, we appreciate over there. And uh, this, to me, is just a privilege to get to come because of that. Because even though it's, it's rare when I'm over here, I'm normally down the freeway at Grace Community Church working in the college ministry. When I get to come here, it's family. And as was expressed in the prayer, praying for one another, because we know the work of the gospel ministry goes on forth through this church. So thank you for that. Uh, turn to Psalm 16 if you already didn't see it in your notes. That's where we're going to be this morning is spending some time thinking about a God as we sang, as the one we can trust. In that song that we, the third one on the uh, set list, you are sovereign uh, based on God's power. You are good based on his loving kindness. We can sing, we can trust him. And you will hear that in Psalm 16 this morning as I read from it and then as we study it together and proclaim its truths and ask God to work in our lives through them. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 16, a psalm of confident assertion in the trust of God and a petition even for his protection. A miktam of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. 
I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we do echo David's request this morning for you to be our all. You are good and you are powerful. We acknowledge you as you reign on high from the heavens as we heard sung already that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and and it is your will that we would be worshipers of you. That what is going on in heaven right now, the praise that is only due to your name would also happen down here in our singing and now in this sermon as we listen to hear from your word. So do that work as only you can. Empower this to change us through your spirit's work, we ask. Amen. Well, we might have picked up right out of the gates some of the themes that we sang about this morning is God is our refuge, God is our strength. Right here in the beginning of Psalm 16, when David comes right out of the gates writing to God, a request of him to preserve him or to keep him. And I think that sets our trajectory this morning right out of the gates to think when you're making that request for preservation, for, for help, for hope, to watch over, when you're going to God in prayer with that, that can take one of two directions if you think about it. That can be a, a petition for real help. You may be in a situation in your life where you genuinely are getting on your knees before God and saying, save me, preserve me, keep me. This trial is happening to me and I have no chance to get out of it outside of you. And that could be one category of approach to this text to see it really is a petition. It's a request. And we know that in David writing these miktoms, there's a few of them in the Psalms, 56 through 60, there's a few others. Those particularly locate those Psalms, 56 through 60, in a specific circumstance of David's life, when he's on the run, when he's in a cave. This one doesn't, but if we have some idea of maybe the, the concept of behind what's going on in David's life, it could be a time when he really is in trouble. And so some of you this morning, as you would approach this, you might come to the text saying, that's me. I am presently in this moment experiencing a trial and I don't know the way out and all I could do is come to something like this and say, yes, help me, O God, preserve me and keep me for in you I take refuge. Yet on the other side of that coin, if you are not in a trial currently, and maybe David wasn't when he wrote this, we don't know, it, it also could be that this is just a confession of trust. It, it may not be a request as much as it's just saying, look, when I come to God in prayer, I know that he holds all the world in his sovereign hand as we sung, and he has an everlasting, never-ending love for me that I can trust in. And my life right now, for, for whatever reason, is good, but I still can have the same sense on the inside that, God, it is only in you that I trust. So it's two sides of the same coin. It's a request, it's a petition to say, God, will you help me? I'm taking refuge in you. And on the other side of that coin, it could just be a confession of saying, God, you are good to me. I know that. I love you. You've loved me first. And I just want to confess that to you. Either way, I like to have both. But there's times when I come to God in prayer, even in this psalm, and I'm praying through it, and I'm saying, yeah, God, there, there are things that I'm going through, and I'm asking you for your protection and your help. But at the end of the day, I'm asking for this when I already know it's true. 
that you are my sovereign protector. And you are my all-faithful, loving God who keeps me. And so it's both. And that kind of sets the the emphasis, the tone of this psalm is is him stating a request and preserve me, O God, but already believing in its reality when he says, for in you I take refuge. I wouldn't ask you to help me and to keep me right there in verse 1 if I wasn't already taking refuge in you. That being said, that's kind of the theme of where David is going. He's being an example to us that when life gets hard, we all look somewhere. The question for us this morning is, where do we look first? Do we look inward? I have that tendency. I'm a problem solver. I'm a thinker. I, I want to I sometimes look inward and try to solve it myself. I want to take all the pieces of the circumstance, break them down and say, okay, I think I can figure this out. And yeah, all the while I might be giving tacit approval or acknowledgement to what God might have to say, but truthfully, it's keeping me up at night and I'm trying to sort it out in my own thinking. Or I may go to someone else for counsel right away. Rather than go to God right away, I might say, you know what? I have these counselors in my life. They're very faithful. They're very wise. And these are good things. But yet David teaches us in his example that where he looks first is to God. He looks to the Lord. And I'm going to break down the directions in which, God, in which David prays to God in this psalm, in this praise to him, where we see some directional movement of where that prayer goes. And it starts first that he looks up to God's person in verses 1 and 2. He's going to look elsewhere, but his first look, which isn't always my tendency when life gets hard, is to look up because I trust God. But you see that right out of the gates with David when he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He's not looking anywhere else except up right now, which teaches me and encourages me and challenges me that Adam, When you walk into that trial, when that trial comes and finds you, either way, where's your first look? Are you going to turn inward and solve it yourself? Are you going to look at the circumstance and blame those or find other people? Or will you instinctively cultivate in your heart that get on your knees before God and look up? Because that's what David does. And we see that in his language of how he speaks of God, he knows the God he is trusting in. He uses three different names of God, which kind of paints us a picture of who he sees when he looks up. First, he says, preserve me, O God. That is the word El. It's the title for supreme deity in the Old Testament. This would suggest that David fundamentally knows the one that has the power to change anything right now is God. But he doesn't just talk about the all-powerful God, the supreme deity. Verse 2 says, I say to the Lord, notice the shift, it's all caps, Lord. It's Yahweh, which means David knows he is talking to a personal God, his God, the covenant-keeping God, faithful to the people of God of Israel. So it's yes, he sees when he looks up in prayer and in praise to God, the powerful one, but he also sees the personal one, one that's not detached, the watchmaker in the sky, the one that sets it all up and lets it operate, but has no interest in the lives of his creation, particularly in the lives of those people he's redeemed. It's not just a powerful God, it's a personal God. But then look, he says, I say the Lord all caps, but then he says, you are my Lord. It's even more personal. This is Adonai. This is, you are my master. You're not just the covenant-keeping God, the personal God of Israel, You're my master. I owe my allegiance to you. You're preeminent. You're the first among all gods. There is no one like you. And so just in that opening line of how David addresses God, we see that he is a God who is powerful, personal, and yes, preeminent. And all of those words, as you think about 
being uh, David asking God for preservation, for protection, for keeping and watching over, it, it's synonymous language with refuge, with some stronghold, something you go to for protection, which is all over David's writing in the Psalms. Just turn two chapters over to Psalm 18. This Psalm is actually borrowed from 2 Samuel 22. It's near the end of David's life. Though he wrote it towards the end of his life, it was a reflection upon a time in which he was running from his enemies, particularly Saul. And just listen in the opening words of Psalm 18, how David, when he's addressing God, images come to his mind, and these are images that suggest power and protection and personal care. Listen to Psalm 18.1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Why? Because the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You can see the same thing written in 2 Samuel 22, near the end of his life. And when I think of God being powerful and personal and preeminent in all those ways that David saw him in this prayer, these words are perfect. Refuge, stronghold, tower. But the word that I love the most, that for me, if I'm trying to, if I'm going to God in prayer, how am I picturing him? What's the image that helps me understand how much is he going to help me? How protective is he of me? I love the word fortress. And think of a fortress. The language that David uses for refuge, for stronghold, for tower, all synonymous language. But I would just encourage you, maybe an aspect of what God is like and who he is to you when you're praying for pres preservation and protection, help and power. Do you picture God as your fortress? Is he all-powerful? Because if you're going to choose a fortress, not that I deal in fortresses, except when I'm playing Legos with my kids, but I want to build a fortress that is fundamentally, first and foremost, powerful. Because if it ain't powerful, it ain't protecting nobody. I mean, if it's got walls that are starting to crumble, if there's easy ways in and out, it's not powerful. It's not going to do any protecting. It's, it's no good. And if God isn't all-powerful, if we don't trust in Him as, as sovereign and in control, as we sang already, then what can He do with, for us? So if we find this powerful God that we run to for strength, yes, it's encouraging to see those mighty walls, that protective arm. But what good is it if He's not a personal God, if you're running to that fortress and you can't get in? You're knocking at the door for help and nobody's answering. Do you know the king who's in charge on the inside? Because it's great to have a fortress and great to have power, great to be protected, but if you don't have somebody on the inside, that that God that you know isn't personal to you, then what good is that fortress? How can you be protected by it if you're not allowed on the end? And lastly, when I'm praying, it's the preeminent fortress. There is no other one that's even close in any category to offering me the salvation, the protection, the deliverance than God offers me. And so I read this at the beginning and I think of the different language David uses of refuge and stronghold and tower and rock. And I think he's powerful when he's personal and he's preeminent. So where does that lead my soul to go? Look at the last line of verse two when David is looking up. What's that bring him to admit? I have no good apart from you. Total abandonment of trust in himself. Complete faith in God. Forsaking all, he trusts in God. Because he knows there's nothing good 
outside of him or beyond them. The King James Version translate this verse, my good extendeth not to thee, as in there is nothing that I'm doing good that's putting God in my debt that if I don't do enough of it, he might not protect me. Are you following what I'm saying? See, we can work with maybe sometimes of a debtor's ethic with God. That, oh, I, oh, I have some good to extend back to him. And David says clearly, I have no good apart from you or my goodness extends not to you. As in this is coming from God, the protection, the power, the care, the love, it's personal. That all is from the source of God given to David. And he acknowledges that. I have no good apart from you. The practical realization is this. I can trust you, God, because you are my good. What, what do I have to offer, offer you other than my gratitude, my praise, my worship, acknowledging you for who you are and what you've done? Calvin said of this, the sum of this opening discourse, these two verses, is that when we come before God, we must lay aside all presumption. It's good to think on just that line. The sum of these opening lines, this discourse is that when we come before God, we lay aside all presumption. What presumption could that be? That we have something good we might first offer to God than to earn his goodness and protection and favor back to us. But scripture is very clear with us. His goodness first reached out to us in his son, Jesus Christ. He demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That goodness started, originated with God. It did not originate and start with us. David understands that. You're the one I take refuge in. You're the one that's my good. You're the one that's all powerful. So there's nothing that originated in me, God, to put you in debt to me. So I just give you back my trust. Complete faith. Total worship. So I ask you this question this morning. When you look up, who is this God that you see? Is he all powerful? And is he all good? Those twin handles of faith that we hold on to. I came across a reading this week, a famous Christian dead guy, probably not so famous, David Clarkson. He was a Puritan. He actually was one that succeeded after John Owen was gone in his church. And David Clarkson wrote this devotional in a book called Voices from the Past that, that caught my attention, that talks about the twin handles of our faith that we hold on to in God's greatness, his power, and his goodness, his love. Just listen as I read this. Faith not only holds to the fact that God is able, but that he is willing to do what you seek. He is able, as in powerful and willing, he is good. Grip two handles with your faith. Take hold that he is able, omnipotent, omniscient, and all-sufficient, but also take hold that he is willing to meet your needs by his mercy. It is true that we are prone to doubt God's willingness But the Lord has provided for this remarkably. Where there is but one attribute to describe God's power, there are many titles that prove his willingness. Mercy, goodness, bounty, grace, love, compassion, patience, long-suffering. Get your faith fixed upon this double basis, these two handles, and it will stand firm. God is both able and willing. What more could we ask for when we need to trust in him? And we wrestle with him in prayer because we don't have the wisdom he has when we're asking God, okay, okay, you're all powerful. I've leveled with that. But because my circumstance hasn't changed and I'm still in this trial, my question then becomes, are you actually good? Because in my humanity, I would think if you are good, you're going to give me the thing I want. 
And then we're wrestling now with the wisdom of God. Why doesn't he give it in the time frame we want it? But the twin handles of our faith, we can let those things coexist. You've probably interacted with an unbeliever who might pose the question to you, the problem of evil. Well, either God is all-powerful and not good, he can stop it, but he just chooses not to, or he is all good, he's just not all-powerful. He doesn't want these bad things to happen, but apparently he's letting them happen, so he doesn't have the power to stop it. And that's not just a question we face in our apologetics and our witness. It's a question I face in my own prayer. When life isn't going the way I want, do I believe God is all-powerful, and do I acknowledge that and believe that in faith and trust him, and simultaneously am I acknowledging and believing and hoping and trusting? Yes, because you gave your son for me, there's nothing greater that you could give that I know you are also good. You are willing. You're not just able. Well, that's first where David turns this morning. He looks up, but he doesn't stop there. He starts there, which kind of opens up the levy of the wonder of God's mercy and goodness to then look elsewhere. So in verses three to four, you now see that David looks around at his people. He started by looking up in prayer and praise to God, and now David can look around at his people. And so we can learn from that in our prayers as well. Yes, we look up to God. All things are coming from his hand. He is all powerful and he is all good. But it happens to me in my experience of faith that it is good then to turn my eyes from only thinking about me and what God is for me to looking around to what God is to all the saints in the land, which is what David does. Look at verse 3. Right from just talking to God about all the goodness he is to David, then he says, And as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. He rejoices in the fact that he's not alone in this. And in fact, he rejoices in the joy of the excellent ones in the land. David loved the people of God. And they ministered to his soul. They were ones, if you just, you can just listen as I read, but in Psalm 101, David is rejoicing in the ways in which the faithful in the land can dwell with him. 101 verse 6, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. Saints in the land minister to one another. It was beautiful to hear in the prayer this morning in both services, praying for your sister church, Grace Community. Because I'm there. And I'm thinking how sweet it is that up the road from us, there's a church praying for us in our ministry. Now, working at TMU, I have the opportunity to travel around and, and visit other churches and get to do this, where I see the connectivity between all these churches, a common love for the Lord Jesus Christ and, and hope in the gospel and hope in that mission that leads us to pray for one another. It's very real that our hearts are encouraged and built up and strengthened when we don't look around and wonder, oh, I wonder if those other churches are yeah, you know, getting bigger and better and doing more things than us, rather than, I rejoice in that. The God who we serve that wants his gospel to go to the ends of the earth has saints everywhere, all across the world, and when we hear of what they're doing and see their faithfulness, we can rejoice in them. And yet, look in verse 4, there also comes with that some sorrows when in looking out, David notices there are those who what? run after another God. And that's true in the history of Israel, God's people. There were people within Israel that weren't Israel. They were part of the people, but they weren't following the personal God, Yahweh. And what happens to them? They run after another God and their sorrows shall multiply. Compound misery. You see, somebody that's, that knows it and runs away from it is compounding their misery. Because the time they could be using to serve God and worship God and follow God is wasted. And on top of it, 
if they're, if they're a, a saint who was in the land who would be tempted to go after and run after another god, think of all the warnings in the Old Testament against that. Why God in Deuteronomy 7 was so adamant that you shall follow after no other gods and let, no other, none, let none of your sons and daughters marry people that follow after other gods. For why? The fear that they'll turn your heart away from the one true God. What turned King Solomon, David's son, away from God? It was all the foreign women that he married, it says. He let those women, the, all the women that he had, lead his heart away from God, and he started following after those gods. And what a sad ending to his life, as opposed to David, who's saying, look, those who run after another god, their sorrows multiply. And look what he says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or even take their names on my lips. There was a prohibition in Exodus 23, 13 against even naming the other gods surrounding Israel. Don't even name them. Don't even let them be on your lips. Not that there's anything magical or mystical about that. I think that the emphasis, the heart behind that is for God to say, don't even entertain the thought of their existence that you would speak of them. That they would even cross your mind. As, yes, you can see other people following after other gods, but even to mention them is foolishness because they're not, they're not real. They're made by human hands. Isaiah talks about they're, they're carved out of wood and then somebody bows down and worships them. And David is saying, I, I look to these people, those who run after another god, I don't even want to take their names on my lips. I want to stay as far away from those people as possible. Back to Psalm 101, though he praised having faithful ones that surrounded him that he would minister with. Listen to what he says about those who don't. Right after verse 6 in Psalm 101, he says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land. He says in verse 7, no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. I will walk with the integrity of my heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. David loved the saints of the land and he rejoiced in God's people and he was just burdened with sorrow over the unfaithful ones who walk away. Calvin writes about these people, those who honor false gods by offering them gifts not only lose what is thus expended, as in they waste that which they give to it, resource and time and energy and praise, but they also heap up for themselves sorrow upon sorrow, provoking the wrath of God against themselves and thus continually increasing the amount of their own misery. Do you think about that when you think about unbelievers you know? I mean, it, it, it can incite us and it can get us angry when we see them trying to pull other people away from God with them, but do you think of their misery and does it break your heart? That they're compounding misery in their life. They're multiplying their own sorrows. And so when we pray, when we turn outward and look around us, we can pray and rejoice for saints in the land who are doing God's will, loving God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Rejoice in other churches, and yet also the flip side of that is we have a sorrow in our heart, don't we? When we pray for the lost. When we pray for some we see that might have been in church and started to walk away. And you see that. David's heart would be to celebrate that God, you are all powerful and you are all good and I trust in you and continue to bless those saints, those excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I mean, what a good word for us in the church, isn't it? To look around this room in this church and say, there's an excellent one and I delight in them for the work of God in their life. That I could just enjoy looking out here and some of you that I know that I work with and say, I'm just so thankful you're here. 
I'm so thankful for the ministry I get to go to, go to down there on Roscoe Boulevard and just praise God for the work that with some of you I know that's happening here and as I've gotten to know other churches in the Santa Clarita Valley, Valley it just amazes me the care God has for this particular community to put so many good churches up here that love God's word and hold it high and believe in discipleship and are reaching out to the lost with the gospel. Those are good and faithful ways to pray for people around you. But it's not just that that David does. He goes from looking up to God and acknowledging he's good and powerful. He looks around and celebrates the saints and laments those who run away. But then he looks back the next direction. He looked up, he looked out, and now he's looking back at the providence of God in his life. Now he mentions, look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. A few images from the life of Israelites that we may not have or use today. We usually don't talk about a portion, or if we talk about a cup, it's a, it's a physical image, or a lot. I guess we could talk about a lot of land. Then he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. But think about it just for a moment. When David was on the run from Saul, he actually had none of these things in physical form. He had no land anymore. He was looking around, looking for protection and refuge. He had no cup, as in sustenance, daily water and food. He had to go find it. He, he had no inheritance coming. He had no law. He had no counsel, as in he was not with the people of God anymore. He was on the run. And if he had someone at his right hand, he had to question, could he really trust them? So in David's case, all of these images, a portion, a cup, a lot, an inheritance, counsel, an Israelite would have remembered back to the first five books, the Law of Moses. And remember, these were the promises God gave to his people that he would give them a portion. He would give them a cup. He would bring them to the promised land. They would have all these wonderful promises. And David just sees with eyes of faith right past the physical to the spiritual. And he sees that God is all those things to him. Look at what he says in verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion. Not my portion, my chosen portion, as in I signed up with him. I'm choosing him over something physical that I could want to go after and seek out. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And he's not saying, Lord, I know you hold my lot like you've got the deed to the land that you owe me back there. No, you are my lot. I may never have a place to settle down in again, but I have you. And if I have you, I have everything I need. So therefore, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I do have a beautiful inheritance. Changes his perspective. He didn't know whether he would ever make it back into Jerusalem. He never knew, would he ever reign as king again? Who knows? He was on the run. But you know what? That really didn't matter to him in the bigger scheme of things because he had looked to the Lord and said, you are my good, you're my portion, you're my cup, you're my lot. And you know what? Even I would imagine in his life, none of us would have looked and said, yeah, the lines are falling for you in pleasant places, David. It's really great that there's a skirmish line outside that cave waiting to get you. But David could say, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. What a beautiful inheritance I have. He may not have had counsel. He may have been cut off from the priests and those who were near him, the prophets that would give him counsel. But whose counsel mattered most to him? Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So I have set the Lord always before me. How could God be his counsel? How could his heart instruct him in the night? How could he not sin against God? He was always before me. David always lived in the presence and nearness of God, always in front of him, 
always asking. If you look in the narrative of David's life, before going into a battle, seeking from the Lord what he should do. Not just always before him, as in this idea of leading into battle, but he was his counsel at his right hand. And in kingship language, in kingly language of the court, the person that was at your right hand was your most trusted. That was the person you would turn to, your advisor. Who's the person at David's right hand? The Lord is. And look what he says, because he is at my right hand, looking at God's providence in his life, his relationship with him. Because God is at my right hand, I shall not ever suffer. No, it doesn't say that. I shall only be victorious every day I wake up. No, it doesn't say that either. I shall only have good things happen to me. Nope. David just goes to the lowest common denominator he could go to in his faith. I shall not be shaken. I may not be making steps forward because of my circumstance, but if God's at my right hand, I certainly won't be taking any steps backward. Have you seen that in your life? There may have been seasons of difficulty and trial. And God was at your right hand, and he was ever before you, and you may have said, you know what? It's just so heavy. It's just so hard. Life is just so difficult. I may not actually be taking steps forward right now, but at the very least, I know I'm not going backwards. Why is that? Because you have the Lord at your right hand. He is who is next to you. He's not going to let you stumble. You're going through John 10, I believe, as I looked on your website in recent weeks. What does Jesus promise about his sheep? None will what? Snatch them out of my hand. None will perish that the Father gives to me. What a wonderful promise to hold on to. Yes, in my humanity, I need to admit often before the Lord, I don't feel like I'm going anywhere right now. But at least I know if you're at my right side and before me, I will not go backwards. I will not be shaken. What promise and hope do I bank on there? It's the promise of the gospel. Ephesians 6 talks about the sandals that we put on that give a firm foundation. In the Roman centurion armor, the sandals would have been these pieces of wood that would have had these big spikes driven through from the top to the bottom. So when they put them out to go into battle, they weren't like sprinter spikes, you know, that there's like, you know, they're just weaving through the opposition. No, these are standing, staying steady sandals. And Ephesians 6 says, And as shoes for your feet, verse 15, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So Paul draws upon an image using the gospel of peace to connect it and say, when you stand in the promises of God that he's for you and not against you, he's all-powerful, you may not go too far forward, but you won't get knocked back. Why? Because Romans, Romans 5, 1 says, having therefore been justified, we have peace with God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a good promise to go back to in the midst of a trial? If you can't go to anywhere else and turn to anything else, and can't, you can't find any silver lining of the providence of God that maybe this thing is going to end, at the very least, you can know I could stand confident in my God because I'm at peace with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And it would be appropriate now to say that if any of you aren't a Christian this morning, that if you do not stand in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have that protection of peace with God. The scripture would call you an enemy of God. You would not be right with him. You would still be a recipient of his wrath eventually. 
but God is patient and long-suffering. And he's even giving you a chance this morning to hear a message that you can be at peace with God. How? Through the gospel of peace. That you will not be shaken the rest of your life. You trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Not promising you some pie-in-the-sky theology of just victory over every possible challenge that will ever come. Actually taking up your cross and following Jesus Christ brings with it a host of new opportunity to live for God's glory and a host of new opposition. But you'll stand firm in the faith because you have Christ at your right hand. Because he reigns right now at the right hand of God in the heavens. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, was asked, where is your assurance, friend, as he was in jail? And he said, it's in heaven because my righteousness is there. It's not down here with me. If you look back at Psalm 16, 2, my goodness does not extend from thee to you, God. It first comes from you to me. And if you're not a believer here today and you're not a Christian, that goodness of God comes to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, would die on the cross to take away your sins and give you everlasting life as you put your faith in him. You would forsake all and trust in him. And one last aspect of trust that David had as you look to the last few verses is a future hope that you have because of the power of the resurrection. The last direction David looks from looking back at God's provinces is forward to his promises. And this is sealed, this is kept because of belief in life after death, the resurrection. You've probably seen Psalm 16, 9 through 11 quoted in the New Testament and you wouldn't be wrong. It's what Peter preached in Acts 2. It's what Paul preached in Acts 13. The resurrection message was the key that unlocked the hope of the future, that any person could know that when I die, I will rise again because Jesus Christ did. That's the hope of the gospel, and that's what gives David hope. Even though 1 Peter 1, 10, 11 says, not all the prophets knew exactly what they were talking about, looking forward. But David knew enough and he trusted enough in God that he could say, look, if you have taken care of me up until this point, why wouldn't I have the faith that you're going to take care of me the rest of the way? Argument from the lesser to the greater. God, if you have been my good all of my life, if you have been my portion and my cup and my inheritance, if you have been gracious to me, long-suffering, why at death would I stop trusting in you? Look what he writes in 9 through 11. Therefore, meaning in light of all these things that I know that are true, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. Why? What was the bedrock of David's faith? God, just as you won't abandon me in the past, you won't in the future. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And it's the same hope that we have. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My brother gave testimony to it this morning. That changed his life. Yeah, it made him weep to see that Christ was crucified and died for his sins, but what joy it brought to your life when you knew that one day you would stand and be with him because he came back from the dead. It's the power of the resurrection. It happened. And David, as little as he might have known, led by the Holy Spirit, could say, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now we know in David's life, his body did decay. He was speaking of the greater David. He was speaking of the one whose body wouldn't stay in the tomb. Peter's argument in Acts 2 is, look, brothers, this couldn't have been about David because we could still find his tomb and probably in there his bones. But the one person you're not going to find down here still long after their death is the Lord Jesus Christ because he rose again and he ascended to the Father. That's the hope we have. 
We have the testimony of Scripture, and David shows us that we have the testimony of our faith, of our belief. When you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're explaining to them how they can become a Christian, you have to include the resurrection because they may look at you and just wonder, like, really? You're putting all your stock in what this book says that when you die, you're going to live forever in heaven. And you say, yes, because my Savior is. He's alive. He's right now ruling and reigning from up on high. That's my hope. He's there, and he's waiting for me. And David could have hope that he was not going to see corruption, darkness, where he would just disappear forever. So verse 11, he concludes, man, this is so great. You have shown to me the path of life, eternal life, we see on this side of the cross. And in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a wonderful truth to remember this morning. That it's not like we, we it's like, uh, how good will it be? How much joy will there be that day? Well, how much joy do you experience today in the Lord Jesus Christ? Here it's saying there's a quantity and a quality of it that's never ending. You'll, you'll never exceed it. it. It's a quality of joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. So there will be no diminishing of the quality of your joy. The small joys we experience here will transpose to the highest key. And it's a quantity. It's not just a quality. Look, last verse. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The quality of our joy will last forever and the quantity of our joy as well. I mean, what a great hope and promise to end on. Why do we trust God? Because this ultimately is where we know all of us will be one day. We don't know what tomorrow will bring or next month or next year. Maybe I'll be back here in two years preaching again. Don't know what shape any of our individual lives will take with. But I know in 10,000 years, verse 11 is true for all of us. And we'll be able to say we are experiencing the fullness of joy and at the right hand of God, pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for its truthfulness. Thank you for its power. That we could learn from David to look up to you who are all powerful and all good. That we could look around and see the saints in the land and delight in them. That we could look back and see that you have been all of what we need over and abundant more than we could have asked or imagined because you've given us eternal life, which is our forward-looking hope. Why we trust you is we, we believe the words of Christ when he said to the disciples after teaching them and teaching us that we need to abide in you and you in us. That he would tell them that these things I've told you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Father, we take you up on that offer this morning. There is nothing more than we would love this morning than entrusting in you we would walk out here with a greater joy in Jesus Christ today. A joy that is founded, the source is in him, and the satisfaction is never diminishing as we fix our eyes of faith upon him. So I pray you would take these truths, multiply them, bear fruit from them in our lives even today, that we would have a greater trust in you because we believe, we believe that we will see our Savior one day ruling and reigning with our pleasures forevermore.